Hello and welcome to Life Learnings. I'm Barry Harker and my guest today is Naomi Ahern. Naomi is a composer, musician and singer with extensive experience as a music teacher and accompanist. Naomi has composed theme music for 3ABN Australia TV and radio. All introductory and exit music for 3ABN Australia radio's programs, heard on 3ABN Radio Network, is Naomi's work. Naomi has composed theme music for each of the segments of the Children's Story Hour. Since 2009, Naomi has operated a dog grooming business from her home. Naomi lives with her husband Robert on the New England Tableland, New South Wales. Their son Stephen is one of Australia's leading guitarists. Today I'll be talking with Naomi about the place of music, singing and composing in her life and how she combines a musical life with running a business from home. After the break, I'll be talking with Naomi about her early life and spiritual experience. Welcome, Naomi. Hello, Barry. It's great to have you in the studio. Having worked with you over the last 12 months or so, it's great to meet you and to, uh, to have you here today. Naomi, music's a wonderful gift. What does music, singing and composing mean to you? It's my life. It's part of my DNA. It's, uh, it's just something I can't not do. Okay. So tell me about your musical background and training. Um, after I finished my HSC, I went to the University of New England and uh, studied there, um, completing my Bachelor of Music and Diploma of Education. Um, and then I went and uh, worked as a secondary music teacher. Okay. In uh, local high schools, yeah. And you also have some uh, primary teaching experience too, don't you? Later on in life, I did specialist music teaching in uh, primary schools, yeah. And you've been an accompanist at yes. the University of New England. Tell me about that. I worked uh, with the uh, New England Conservatorium of Music and I would accompany choirs and I would accompany um, and help with their beginner string programs and their beginner woodwind programs and brass programs as uh, each child was, um, as part of the package, each term got to um, have a lesson with an accompanist and that was my job. Now, you have a family background of music. Tell me about that. Yes, my father was a professional musician. He, uh, came, he and my mum came from England they met on the ship coming out here, and uh, his first job was to, as a first violinist with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, and my mum was an actress. A first violinist? Yes. That yes. means he's probably the best violinist in the orchestra, is that what you're telling me? Well, yes, to be in the first violinist, mm. and, uh, and before that he was with the Birmingham Orchestra, in, uh, which is another famous orchestra over in England. And uh, he came out here and uh, got married, obviously, to my mum. And after a couple of years, decided that it wasn't the best lifestyle for a marriage. Uh, he was away a lot, touring with the orchestra and uh, performing. And so he then uh, decided he, uh, he wanted to go working on the land and uh, uh, chucked his music uh, violin playing professionally in and did sort of jobs working on orchards and things like that so he could be more at home more often. So when you say you have music in your DNA, it's literal, isn't Literally, it? <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. What about your mother? Yes, she was an actress and she was a singer. She used to do, before she came out to uh, Australia, she would do um, 
you know, like musicals and where you you sing and act and uh, things like that. Okay. What about your siblings? Are they musical as well? They are, but they never pursued it. Um, like we can all sing and harmonise naturally. Uh, my brother is a singer. My my elder brother, um, you know, taught himself guitar. And my other sister, we would sing together and just naturally harmonise and without, you know, being taught because we just had that um, innate inner ear. Uh, but they never pursued it um, into anything um, professional. Okay. Now, when did you begin composing? When I was very, very young. I actually remember sitting at the age of six or seven on the piano and just experimenting uh, with chords and, and, and the keys. And, uh, and then I remember one night um, going to a, a film night. This is before DVDs and videos. And uh, uh, they were showing the film Greyfriars Bobby. Tell me, tell me about Greyfriars Bobby for those people who perhaps haven't heard about it. Oh, it's just the most moving film about the faithfulness of a little dog uh, who used to belong to this gentleman called Greyfriar. And um, he, uh, he dies. This is in Scotland, isn't this it? This is in Scotland, yes. And he dies and I forget for how many years this little dog goes and lives and sleeps on his grave. And the community kept him alive by feeding him and, uh, and looking after him after his master dies. You saw that film. What did it inspire you to do? I went straight home and wrote a piece of music as an emotional response to that film. And that's when I first started discovering... Uh, the impact of music and emotions and, and as a tool for expressing your emotions. Now, this might be jumping ahead a little bit, but you have a dog grooming business now. Is there mm. any relationship between that film and the dog grooming business today? Oh, I'm sure there is. I've always been a dog lover. Um, and at the time of that film, I had my own little dog. Okay. So... Writing songs became a really important part of your life in 1989. Tell me the story, because in, in response to what you're about to tell me, you did a couple of CDs. You, you um, wrote the songs and recorded the CDs. Tell me the story. Well, in 1989, one of the best things to ever happen in my life happened, and that was I had a breakdown. And... I have never looked back since that time because up until then I had been going through life like a lot of us, only just coping, just keeping my head above the water. And uh, finally uh, my body said, I can't do this anymore. And uh, I was... Now by this stage you're married, <coughs> aren't you? I had been married, yes, for um, quite a few years. I'd been busy working as a secondary music teacher had a very successful life from the outside, high achiever um, and uh, everything going great, you know. And uh, people said to me, you know, you would not... If I had to do a list of people who I thought would have a breakdown, they said, you wouldn't even make the list. And uh, so I was, I was a typical candidate for one, actually. But I was walking along, sitting on a lot of uh, personal 
um, doubts and issues, you know, low self-esteem, low self-worth and uh, things like that. And finally, you know, my brain and body said, no, I've had enough, got no more energy to keep this facade going. Now, you're a really really competent musician and uh, an excellent teacher. Hmm. And yet you're still suffering from low self-esteem. Totally. So, totally. So your perception of yourself was probably not as accurate as it, as it maybe might have been. No, it wasn't accurate at all. Um, and so I was hospitalised uh, in uh, what's now called the Wesley Hospital in Sydney, private psychiatric hospital, uh, having acute anxiety depression and anorexia nervosa. Uh, and it's interesting because up and also up until then, um, my Christian experience had been very academic and one very based on knowing a lot. Mm. And uh, this was why I say it was the best thing that ever happened to me because it forced... You know, they say the the greatest distance between any two points is from the head to the heart, and that's what this breakdown forced me to do. It took my head knowledge and it forced me to have a heart experience with God. And because I had that typical experience that you hear from everybody else when they say, you know, I remember clearly the day after I'd been there for about two or three weeks thinking I'll probably go home soon. And my doctor came to me and confronted me then with the news and says, this is what you've got and you're not leaving here until you're better and that could be six months. And I remember at that point sitting on the floor in my room crying that prayer, God, if you're really real, if you're really there and if you're really real, now is when I need you. And I just can remember just feeling this supernatural sense of comfort and peace. Mm. He really answered that prayer and that started my journey with God as a as a, a, a real person, not just a name in a Bible and in a book. Um, and I've never looked back ever since and I'm so thankful for the breakdown for doing that. Most people wouldn't think that a breakdown was good news. No, but it is. But for you, it was a... It was a transforming experience. Totally. Now, the CDs that you produced were part of getting over this. So tell me about the CDs. Well, I had dabbled in writing little bits of things, sort of instrumental little things on on the piano all the time in my fascination with uh, film music and incidental music. And, uh, and incidental music is what you're doing for us, isn't it? Yes, really? it's yeah, it's the music in the back. Well, it's the background music in films and and television that you're not aware of, but is really ninety percent of the emotional impact of what you're watching. Mm. Um, and so I started putting pen to paper because I started this journey of self discovery. Now you had been experimenting though, hadn't you, yes. throughout your life with with composing? Yes. But this was really the stimulus. It was the stimulus. And I started writing songs about what I was learning about myself, but more importantly, what I was learning about God. And I would put it down in, in, and then I would set it and turn it into a song. And that's what all the songs were on my CD. Were They were basically, I really relate to David in the Bible. 
they were they were psalms. So some of them, depending on where I was at and what issue I was having to deal with at the time in my psychotherapy, they were either so, uh, songs of praise or they were songs of, God, I really need you to help me. You know, I'm 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 crying in despair here. You know, so and then there were songs in between, but they were the extreme. You know, they were the one extreme to the other. But they um, they were part of my therapy. What impact did they have? Well, I would I would get up and sing them and share them with people, and because they were very brutally honest, and I would just say it how I was feeling, or I would describe you know, what was going on for me and what God had done for me, um, people could relate. And it was like, wow, these are songs that we can really relate to what this person's saying um, because we've been there, you know. So a lot of people got tremendous encouragement from the songs. In 1992, you won a songwriting contest. Tell me about that as well and what impact did that have on your life and your composing? Well, that was interesting because up until then I'd just sort of written songs from an emotional response. And then I was reading the record and... The it, record being? Um, um, church magazine. Church, church paper. Yes, and it said that the youth department was running a songwriting competition um, and for the up-and-coming um, youth congress that was going to be in New Zealand. And I thought, oh, what the heck, I'll have a go at that just for fun and they told me what the theme was it was on the Holy Spirit and so I put pen to paper and I turned it into a song and I recorded it and sent it down and didn't think anything of it and um, to my surprise they contacted me later and they said you've won it's we've chosen your song what impact did winning that competition have on your own understanding of your ability to compose? Oh, well, it validated it and it made me think, well, it's not just me writing songs for myself. You know, I can write contractually. You know, mm -hmm. if someone says, I need a song about this, I can write it about that even though I don't necessarily have to have an emotion response connected to it. Are you still writing songs? Yes. It's the way I express and make sense of my life. Mm -hmm. Now, in 1993, something else happened in your life. You had your first and only child. Yes. Stephen. Yes. Tell me about that. Well, um, he. it was highly recommended as part of my recovery and my uh, ongoing um, healing that I be a, become a mother. I, at that stage or for that up until then, we'd been married 10 years and I just wasn't interested in... Uh, I didn't have enough love for myself, so <laughs> how could I love a child? Um, so uh, we took the step and took the advice and went, OK, um, and I uh, became a mother and I've never looked back. And Stephen, as we'll talk about later, is... Um as we already mentioned, too, is one of Australia's best guitarists. So he's got the DNA as well. Absolutely. I think it's getting stronger as it gets passed down. Now tell me about the process that you use to compose music. Well, it's, it's interesting. Um, when I'm doing a contract piece, 
that doesn't have any emotional necessarily, you know, it's not from the heart, so to speak. It's just an intellectual exercise. I always, always pray. And I say, God, um, I, you know, I need, I need you to help me. And I, you know, and I ask for his guidance and his, and, and I have heard other songwriters talk about the same experience where suddenly you will just hear the tune. The tune, a tune will just come into your head. You'll hear it from beginning to end. You'll hear the instrumentation. You'll hear exactly what you want to do. And some pieces I have written in 10 minutes. It's just like bang and it's done. And you know that you've been part of something much bigger than yourself. Mm. And it's extremely humbling. And you just sort of think, wow, you mean God has just used my hands and fingers to to put this together. And it's um it's yeah, it's it's an a really unusual feeling. Are there any times or occasions when you have to take longer than ten minutes? Would it would it extend over several days where you're just coming back at it and Very revising rarely. it? So yours is pretty much first time round. Yes. And you have to do very little revision of, of material? Very rarely, yeah. Um, it's like God gives it to me, I churn it out, and it's it's there. Wow. What are the challenges that you face in composing? I mean, obviously, um, if you're able to do it that quickly, are there any any difficulties that you find in the whole composition process? Now, that 10 minutes, does that happen soon soon after you decide to work on this or does it take days? Does it, do you think about it for several days? Does the tune pop into your head and you go and just write it down? Uh, well, as soon as um, I'm contacted and told, OK, we need music for this program and we want it to have this kind of sound to it and we want it to sort of, you know... Um, convey this type of atmosphere or mood or what have you, straight away my brain just starts thinking. Mm-hmm. And and then I, I pray and then it just comes. And so it's a very short, very short process. Yeah. From the time you pray till the time you actually complete yeah. the music. Yeah, I then just go to my piano and I start and, yes, it's it just happens really quickly. And like I say, it's I'm very aware that I'm just a very small cog in something much bigger that's going on. You're writing for yourself. You're writing music that's not commissioned mm-hmm. and songs that are not commissioned and you're also writing commissioned music. Mm-hmm. Which do you find the easiest? That's a good question. Uh, Is the process the same for both? It's the same process. It's the same process, yes. So what inspires you to write the non-commissioned music? I know when someone asks you to do something that your brain would start start working on it, but what stimulates or inspires you to write a piece of music that's not commissioned? Oh, God. That's all I can... It's the only way I can explain it. And that's always in response to something that's going on in your life or is that just sometimes just out of the air? Um, I Sometimes, like I can remember one song I wrote. I was in the shower 
And I was teaching at a school at the time and one of the ladies had suddenly discovered she had um, breast cancer. And I was in the shower and I was thinking, what would it be like if um, that was me? And, and a phrase, a, a, a group of words came into my head, this is not what I expected. And then suddenly I just heard the song and I got out of the shower and uh, I went... Because when it comes, you've just got to follow it up. And uh, I went straight to the piano and, uh, and pen and paper. And first of all, I often just start with the words. And I started writing, this is not expected. Um, uh, it's not what I had planned. Um, Lord, whatever the reason, help me understand. And, and the words just poured out of me. Mm-hmm. And then I just started fiddling around. It just all just comes, and I can't explain it. It just comes. It just falls into place. And an hour later, I had that song finished and written. I then recorded it and gave it to the lady. And um, it was such a blessing for her. She Mm -hmm. said she would just play it every day, and it helped her get through her her time. So I just, yeah. Hmm. What sort of satisfaction do you get from doing that? What does it feel like to have, to have been inspired to write the piece of music and then have that piece of music make a difference in someone else's life? What does that feel like to you? What satisfaction do you get oh, from that? Tremendous satisfaction. And it's just, sometimes it feels surreal and it just feels so humbling. It's like, but why me, Lord? Why? You know, um, and I just, I just go, thank you, you know. I'm just thank you that uh, you're happy to use me. Now you were asked by Three ABN several years ago to compose some music for them. Yes. And uh, you started with TV, and uh, and then when I came on the scene, you started doing some work for radio as well. Yes. And your TV music is going right across the English-speaking world, basically. Um, what sort of satisfaction do you get from knowing that your music is being a blessing to other people? You know, it's something I don't even think about because I don't see it as my music. Hmm. I see it as God's. It's like that's his theme music. So if I'm reading you right, what you're saying is that your faith and your relationship with God is intimately connected with your creative process and the, mus- and the, and the music that you produce. Yes, yes. Um, I don't feel that I have ownership over any of the music of the songs. I don't see them as my songs. Mm. They're his. And I'm just the hands and the feet. That's quite different from a person who perhaps has to make their living out of music. Where there is there are copyright issues and um, and recording issues, in your situation you're not doing it commercially. You're doing it for other reasons. Mm. Mm. Tell me about your favourite composers. Well, I I my background is in uh, the classics. You know, I was brought up. Uh, I'm a violinist and a pianist, so I was brought up playing in orchestras and playing. You know. The Bach, the Beethoven, the Brahms, and uh, and the Mozart. So out of my classical composers, I'm an absolute Mozart fan. Um, but in contemporary photo, uh, contemporary composers, I uh, I really love uh, Michael W. Smith, 
and uh, some of the songs he writes. Um, so, yeah. Tell me about Mozart. Oh, crazy guy. But um, I love his music. It's just got that perfect balance of predictability and unpredictability. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favourite piece of Mozart's? Um, I love his Requiem. Um, but uh, no, not really. I just, I just love, you know, I, I studied and performed his piano sonatas, you know, f- with piano. Um, and uh, I, just, I just love it. What about Michael Smith? Tell me about his work. Well, he's a very prolific contemporary Christian songwriter. And uh, um, I just, I like the way he, his tunes, his melodies, he's a, a, he writes from the piano. You can tell a composer who composes from guitar as opposed to someone who writes from the piano. So he's like me, he, he writes from the piano and so I guess I can see a, a lot of similarities in the way he, his songs and my songs. How do you fit composing into your busy schedule? I know it's a short process from, it <laughs> from what you're describing. It is a short process. I do it at night um, and uh, when I've finished my dog grooming uh, I come over and I sit down and uh, and I do it. So how many nights would you be actually at the piano? Oh, it depends. Only only a couple of nights. So a couple of nights each week, you might go to the piano and just do some work. Well, if I've got if I've been asked to write something, yeah, then I'll go to the piano and I'll I'll start writing, and because uh, I won't be happy until it's done. Um, it's like a challenge. Hmm. It's like I've been thrown a challenge, and uh, and I want to I want to see if I can meet that challenge. Is night the best creative time for you, or is that just because you've got commitments during the day? Oh, it's just because I've got commitments during the day. Now you're also an expert accompanist. Tell me about your uh, your work as an accompanist at UNE, the University of New England. Well, I was a su- successful accompanist. Um, I believe mainly because. I didn't let my ego get in the way, which is the secret to accompanying really well. You need to realise that it's about the music and it's about who or what you're accompanying. It's not about you. And I would get lots of comments about my accompanying and how sensitive it was to the performance. So a good accompanist has to be really working with the singer, don't they? Absolutely. And the accompanist is really switched on and focused on what the singer is doing and enhancing what they're doing. Yes. Rather than being in conflict with them. That's right. It's not a performance. You're accompanying and it's it's a, a team effort and it's about the music. So again, if you turn your focus away from yourself you become a better accompanist as well. That's right. Interesting, isn't it? Mm. Now, why pet grooming? Well... I think it was 2009, you just made a complete change. That's right. And you're no longer teaching. Do you have private students? I did for a while, yes. I used to teach after school. 
So now it's really pet grooming and you're composing. Yes. Why pet grooming? Why, why, why dog grooming? The short answer, dogs don't have egos. That's an interesting, that's an interesting response because um, in the entertainment world and in the musical world, ego is often central, isn't it? Absolutely. And I would struggle in that world. I wasn't somebody who uh, was interested in self-promotion. And um, to me, it was always about the music, not about me. And I just found it a difficult industry to work in and I was always getting hurt. Um, And then I'd been doing... um, foster caring for the local branch of the RSPCA for many years and uh, I'd been working with dogs and uh, the head coordinator said, I'm thinking of going and uh, doing a course in dog grooming. Would you like to join me? And I thought, why not? And I went and did the course with her and uh, started up my own business and I've never looked back. So what commitment does that require from you? Um... Well, I work from home, so uh, it, it more required a lot of commitment from my poor, long-suffering husband um, because he had to build the, the grooming salon and uh, line it and get it all ready for me, and then I just walk in and do what I love to do and get paid for it. And get paid for it as well. Now, I want you to tell me about Stephen. Stephen's um, a wonderful guitarist. Tell me about his musical journey and the role that being part of your family played in his musical experience. Yes. Well, Stephen, um, when he was born, um, at a very early age, I identified and realised he had an incredibly natural musical gift. From a very young age of like only... 18 months, two years old, he could sing. And you would have had the skills to discern that too, wouldn't you? Yes, he could sing perfectly in tune. Not only could he sing in tune, but he could harmonise with me. And this was only at, you know, age two, three. He also would sit up on the piano and he would compose and make tunes up. At the age of four or five, he would be playing something and I'd think, now I've heard that before. And he'd say, yes, mummy, he said, that was the theme of the such and such program that we watched, you know, two months ago. And I thought, okay, I've got something unique here. Um, And it was it was a challenge because uh, I didn't want to be I didn't want to be a typical stage mother. And uh, and I didn't want to be like all the other um, musicians in in my town that had children who you know they had violins put under their chins or they were sat at the piano and expected to you know become musical and and I didn't really want to do that um, and he was very passionate about the guitar and I thought well all kids you know after watching the Wiggles all kids want to be able to play the guitar. So I thought, I'm just going to leave this. I'm not going to take it seriously because um, it's just going to be a fading, you know, uh, fad. Um, so from about two and a half, three, he, st- he kept, you know, he would cut 
um, cardboard guitars out. He would make guitars. He would make his sandwich in the shape of a guitar. And he was just obsessed with guitar. And I thought, it'll pass. It'll pass. You know, five, you know, by the time he was five, it hadn't passed. So I went to a local guitar teacher who I'd known through my university days. And I said, he's only five. Um, what do you think about teaching guitar? And he said, look, no. Nah. He said, way too young. He said, you usually shouldn't start um, a, a person on guitar until they're about eight or nine. He said, look, I'll give him a lesson and I'll, I'll let you know. Um, gave him his first lesson and he said to me, he said, this kid's amazing. And, uh, yes, so he, Stephen studied classical guitar for 11 years. So when did he start? Age five. So at age five he started classical guitar. Mm. I imagine he advanced pretty quickly. Oh, by the time he was doing, he was in year seven, he was doing eighth grade Amos pieces from the syllabus um, and then it was yeah but you know he struggled he was this typical very creative gifted child who uh, wore glasses had red hair and a hearing aid so as you can imagine he was bullied mercifully uh, no what's the word mercilessly unmercifully <laughs> that's the word he was he was bullied. He was ostracised. He did was, he have a hearing impairment? Yes, he did. He was picked on um, all through his primary school years. He he had a miserable miserable time. Uh, it affected his self esteem and sense of self worth and all of that. And he struggled. The poor kid. He was just a, a square peg in a round hole or whatever it is. I imagine that the guitar was very important to him. Though. It was his lifeline. It was his lifeline. It was the thing he was good at and it just was the thing that kept him going. He could go, well, I'm good at that, so I must be okay. And he um, wasn't just good, was he? Oh, he was brilliant. Mm. Uh, he would go and perform in, in workshops where Karen Sharp and, and uh, famous Australian classical guitarists, and he would perform to them. And my, his teacher would say to me afterwards, he said, they're, they're so blown away by him and his musical maturity and ability to put expression and, and phrasing at such a young age. And uh, they saw him as the next really big thing in the classical guitar world that he was going to be the next, you know, John Williams. And, um, and, and then we had that experience of parents where he came to us at about age 13 or 14 and he said, I don't want to learn guitar anymore. And we went, what? You know, we'd invested all this time and all this money and we could see all this talent, you know. We're talking about maybe he should go down to the Conservatorium of Music in Sydney, at the high school down there, and there were such big plans and it was like, no, nah, don't want to do it anymore. So we took a deep breath and we thought, OK. So we said to him, "What? what is it? He said, I just don't want to do classical music anymore. So we said, so it's not the guitar. He said, no, no. So... He had discovered through YouTube the world of finger style and steel string and Tommy Emanuel. And so he said, I want to do that. So that's, we said, okay, whatever. So he moved across uh, into that world and, uh, and never looked back. And he's now making a career um, as a finger style guitarist in Melbourne. What about his confidence levels? 
oh, they're shocking. Typical musician, he doesn't believe he's good enough. You know, he, um, Molly Meldrum saw him perform and got up on stage and just raved about him and gave him a hat and said, here, take this hat home and, you know, whenever you need some encouragement, just look at my hat. And, uh, and he's had, you know, the, you know, music royalty in Australia um, hear him perform and just rave about him. But at the end of the day, when he's back at home, he struggles with self-confidence and feelings of whether he's good enough um, and, and all of that, that, yeah, that musician mindset. Mm. I'm Barry Harker and you're listening to Life Learnings on 3ABN Radio Network. My guest today is Naomi Ahern. We've been discussing Naomi's life as a musician, singer, composer, music teacher and businesswoman. When we come back, I'll be talking with Naomi about her early life and spiritual experience. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. That is radio at the number 3abn Australia, all one word, .org.au. Our postal address is 3abn Australia Inc., PO Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. If you've just joined us, I'm Barry Harker and you're listening to Life Learnings on 3ABN Radio Network. My guest is Naomi Ahern, musician, singer, composer and businesswoman. In this part of the program, I'll be talking with Naomi about her early life and spiritual experience. Naomi, tell me about your family background. You told us a little bit in the earlier part of the program. Tell us a bit more about your family background and your early life. Okay. Well, I was um, born the last child of four children, and I came eight years later. So my sister and two brothers were all born very close, one year apart for each of them. And then a big gap, and then I came along. So Were you spoiled? No. No, because for various different reasons, they all left home very early. They, they had all left home by sort of 15, which you could do back then in the 50s and the 60s. And so I kind of grew up an only child. I don't have any memories of them. They were basically all gone by the time I was five, six years old. Um, and uh, so it was just me. You were born in Mackay. Mm-hmm. What were your parents doing there in Mackay? You're not going to believe me when I tell you this. My dad was cane cutting. So he's the lead yes. musician, lead violinist <laughs> in the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, and he gives that away and he goes cane cutting. He goes cane cutting. And it was before um, the machine, so it was the old-fashioned with the uh, knife or whatever they called it. So he would have been pretty fit and pretty tired at the end of a day oh, too, I'd imagine. totally, yes. And so 
Yes. Was your mum working at this stage? No. Mum never worked uh, when she came out to Australia. She did a little bit of um, odd cleaning here and there and she worked, uh, I think, a little bit in a like a, a preschool or a, something to do with looking after children, but, yeah, she never followed her career once she came out here. What did you like to do when you were very young? Well, it was the piano and it was music. Um, you know, part of the reason why I had my breakdown later on in life was I had to deal with a lot of issues of loneliness and uh, feelings of abandonment and things like that. So um, it was a very lonely childhood. And so I would just... My best friend in my life was my piano and my dog. And I would just uh, go into this world of music. Your father gave you a violin when you were very young... Yes, we were all obligatory violin students and all had it popped under our chin at age seven and I'm the only one that stuck at it. But while you were learning the violin, and you are obviously an excellent violinist, you had this secret passion for the piano, didn't you? Oh, I was like my own son with guitar. I just loved the piano and so I would spend hours at the piano trying to teach myself, borrowing books off my friends who were learning and having lessons. Fortunately, you had a, fortunately you had a piano in the house though, didn't you? Yes, yes, always had a piano there. And uh, finally at the age of nine, my parents thought, OK, we, we need to get this kid some piano lessons. And I just never looked back. I just went from strength to strength and would just spend hours and hours a day at the piano. And you continued your violin lessons as well? Reluctantly. Reluctantly, yeah. Yes, I sort of kept that going because I sort of feel, well, I probably ought to, you know, keep my dad happy. So what, apart from your piano and your dog, do you really remember about your childhood? Not a lot, just a lot of loneliness. What was school like for you? I enjoyed school. I got on okay. I had friends. I enjoyed learning. I wasn't super, super academic um, and I struggled with maths. Um, but I enjoyed school. I enjoyed getting up and going to school each day and they were happy times and good times. So tell me about some of the schools you went to. I went to, I started out in state public education. Then my parents moved to Kurumbong. Uh, and that's, we're, in, that's in New South Wales. It's in New South Wales. Not far away from our studios here at Morissette. That's right. And I probably had, what is it, six years, six of the happiest years of my life were here. Um, Dad was teaching music and uh, violin at, at Avondale College and then working at the sanitarium health food factory as well to supplement the income. And, uh, and he was very heavily involved with the music with Dr. Alan Thrift and he would, go, they would go, he would go on tours with the choir. He would perform in all concerts and everything and it was, it was such a happy time. I loved my schooling in the Adventist school, Seventh-day Adventist schools here, primary and high school. And then I got the biggest shock of my life, life after being cocooned in this wonderful school where the, the teachers was so lovely and you felt so loved and valued. And then I went, we moved to Armidale. At the age of 50, my dad enrolled as a mature age student up at the University of New England in Armidale because he realised that no one was going to take him seriously as a musician unless he had a degree. 
Now, this is somebody that only went to year eight high school because of the Second World War. So when I think back now, because I'm now 52, at starting a university degree, um, I just take my hat off to him now. And uh, so we moved up to Armidale and uh, I had to then go into a state high school. It was a big adjustment going from a small um, family type school to a big school of, um, you know, seven, eight hundred students. Um, but I think it was good for me. I look back and I go, no, that was good. I, I needed to do that. You were in a Seventh Avenue school up to this point. Yes. And part of your adjustment was getting used to being a very tiny minority in that school. What sorts of challenges did a state high school confront you with having come from that more sheltered environment? Well, it was the first time I'd ever seen or heard a teacher raise their voice at, at a student um, or, or even a class of students. Um, it, that was rare, but this, on my, I remember on my very first day, this particular science teacher yelled at the class because they hadn't done their homework. And I felt like bursting into tears because uh, it was, that was very new to me. Mm. Um, but it toughened me up and it was good and it made me, um, you know, find my place in the world. Now, you said in the first part of the program that your faith was largely what you knew rather than what you had experienced. Yes. Up to this point. It was very academic, very intellectual. You know, I I could uh, debate doctrine and uh, quote Bible verses and I knew what I believed and 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 how to back it all up in the Bible. But I didn't know God. I didn't know the author of the book. And I would I'd, I'd hear stories and sermons where they would say, to get to know God, you need to pray and read the Bible. So I'd, I'd close my eyes and I'd try to pray and there'd be nothing there. I'd go, what am I going to talk about? Mm. And there'd be this silence and I'd go, how can people pray for two hours? What do they talk about? I'd open my Bible and I'd try to read it and nothing. It, it didn't move me. It didn't do anything. I didn't feel any closer for God for doing it because I'd built up this huge big wall around me to protect myself from being hurt. And in the process, I was also... It was the, the wall was blocking me from myself and, and knowing my who I was. And that's why the breakdown was good because... God came along and with his help, we bashed that wall down. And in the process, through his help, I started the journey of, of finding who I was and finding me. And suddenly I had heaps to talk about. Mm. So prayer, as one person expressed it, was just like talking to a friend. Yes. So God is now your friend. Absolutely. And you're able to talk with him and... Talk about the things that you didn't feel you could talk to him before about. I, that's it. I had issues. I was now in touch with my emotions. Mm. I was now in touch with what was going on for me inside, and which I wasn't before. And so that just opened up a whole new world of things to, to bring to God and to talk to him about. Now, you made a decision to study music. Was that your decision? Sort of. It was an expected decision that I... It was sort of expected I'd do that. Did you have anything else that you would have 
preferred to study? Yes, I was thinking of a zoologist. Always the animals has always been there in my life, but um, this I, it was something I was good at. I did well at university. I won piano concerto competitions and things like that. And uh, then I had to make the decision, do I become a concert pianist or do I um, go teaching secondary music? I'd met Robert at that stage, so I decided, no, I'll go take the more quieter family life. Hmm. Now, Robert's obviously an important part of your life. Absolutely. Tell me about meeting him. He was in the church that I was going, the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Armidale. We were part of the youth group there, which was big and vibrant. There was about 20 youth. And we just became really, really good friends and clicked and uh, and then just went from there and got married. Hmm. And the rest is history, as they say. That's right. Now, I want you to tell me a little bit about your experience as a music teacher. What did you enjoy about it? What was was there anything different about your approach to teaching music? There was. When I finished my degree, my the school I was first sent to was Gaia Central, which went to Year 12. And it was became very evident after about six months that what I was taught to teach at university was totally irrelevant at this school because no one outside of the school learnt music or learnt a musical instrument. It was a a small, poor community. So I threw threw all my lesson plans, threw everything out the window, and I started from scratch. And I designed and built a program, a music program, based on meeting their needs and what they needed. And it was very practical. That must have been pretty satisfying. Totally. I started there with only, you know, one or two students choosing to do elective music in year nine. By the time I finished, I had a class of 25, which was the maximum you could have, uh, electing to do music in year nine, 10, 11 and 12, which is a fairly significant number because there was only about 40 students per year. So um, three quarters of every year wanted to do music as an elective. We've talked about the fact that music's pretty high pressure a lot of competing egos and so forth. Yes. So is that the same in music teaching? It is can it? be. It can be. I was fortunate that God gave me a school that was out of Armidale and it was in a little small country town that used to have to drive about half an hour to and I could just do my own thing and I didn't have to be part of the competition that mm. would go on between the different schools and music departments. Mm. Mm. Well, I want uh, to just change tack a little bit now. I want to ask you what your faith means to you. It's everything. It hasn't always been strong. I've had times and things happen when we nearly lost our son um, over when he was overseas when I really questioned God and I just felt... I went through a time where I was just so disillusioned and I just was so tempted to turn my back on God and go, I just don't understand. How could you have allowed this to happen? And and then I realised at that point that even though I was so disillusioned, I was confused and I was hurting, to turn my back on God meant Satan winning. And while I, I was very confused about God at that point, I certainly didn't want Satan to win. So I remember this particular day 
um, picking up my Bible and opening up some psalms, and they were psalms of praise, and I just read them out aloud. I didn't believe what I was reading, but I read them out aloud anyway. And I said, look, God, I don't understand what's going on. I don't know why we're ne- we're, looks like we're losing our son's life. I just don't understand. And I felt, you know, abandoned by him and everything like that, which I know people have experienced. And I just... But I thought, uh, I'll just do this. And I just read these psalms out aloud so Satan could hear. And I thought, no... Uh, and he 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 came and he ministered to me and he he uh, we got through it. Our son's now alive and it's yeah. When I look back, you know, he was there. He was there guiding me and helping me and giving me strength, even though I had such little faith. It was just yeah. What was happening with your son? <clears throat> he was over in Germany on an exchange that had gone very very bad. And he had become extremely suicidal. And um, we couldn't get him home because the the airports were all fl- uh, snowed in. It was the time of that terrible winter over in Europe. And uh, we didn't know if we were going to have him home, bring him home walking on two legs or in a body bag. Um, but... There's, an, there's another whole heap of stories I could tell you about that, about how he got home or how God sent him home for us. You were clearly pretty concerned about him. Very, extremely. And uh, there was nobody or nothing over there to help him. Mm. And uh, he was getting worse and worse and worse and, um, and we knew at any minute we could get a phone call to say, you know, He's taken his life. So even if you come to a major crisis point in your life and you don't feel like God is there, he clearly is. Oh, absolutely. And you can call on him at those times even when you don't feel like doing that. Yes, and there's no judgment. There's no I told you so or or there's no, oh, come on, you know, surely you've got more faith in me than that. Why why don't you trust me? There's Mm. nothing like that. Mm. He just picks you up and takes you in his arms and he just says, it'll be okay. And he just holds you through the process. Naomi, would you tell us what you have learned from your life that you think we should all know? Well, I've learned, as the song says, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus.'" that he's not just a name in a book. He's just not um, a person that you read about. He's real. He's there. And he's interested in every aspect of your life. And he can be trusted 110%. You have a favorite Bible verse too. I do. And it's the shortest one in the Bible, so I guess you're going to be able to quote it. Yes. It's, uh, it's John chapter 11, verse 35, and it's simply Jesus wept. Why is that your favorite? Because I've had to do a lot of weeping and grieving in my life um, as I've gone through psychotherapy and I've had to process a lot of childhood memories, a lot of painful childhood memories. I've lost a lot of close little dogs that have been near to me and I've done a lot of grieving and a lot of weeping 
And I just can remember at times when I was crying so deeply and hurting so badly that I could hardly breathe. Um, I could remember that text, Jesus wept. It was a comfort to know that he knew what it was like to weep Mm. and that I did all my weeping with him there. So when we reach these points, these low points in our lives, we need to remember that Jesus wept too, so he understands what we're experiencing. Yes. Like you did. Yes. Naomi, would you like to um, pray for our listeners? I imagine that there will be a number of people listening who have had similar experiences to you. Uh, would you like to pray for our listeners, but with a special reference to those people who have had some tough times or might be going through a tough time right now? Sure. Our dear loving and heavenly Father, I just want to thank you that you are so real and that you love us so much that you can be trusted with every aspect of our lives, including the sad, the painful and the teary times. Lord, I just want to ask that if there's anyone out there listening who is going through a really, really tough time at the moment, please give them the strength and encourage them to simply let go, lean back into your arms and and weep and sob, and that you will be there to hold them, to wipe the tears from their eyes, to offer understanding, offer acceptance, and better still, offer them hope and recovery. And I just thank you for being the God you are, a God that is just there 24-7 and a God that is is everything you say you are. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Naomi. It's been great to um, talk with you today. It's been great to work with you over the last 12 months or so. Thank you for the wonderful job you do for us here with the, the theme music, the incidental music, as you called it. Yes. It's a great contribution to what we do. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for that. You're most welcome. I'm Barry Harker, and this is Life Learnings. I've been talking with Naomi Ahern, musician, singer, composer, and businesswoman. Remember to tune in again next time as I speak with another fascinating guest on Life Learnings. Until then, bye for now, and God bless you and keep you. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. 